Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host, she's using the home gym downstairs much more than she anticipated, Leanne Hughes. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you create unpredictable workshop experiences that predictably work. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Last week, we had David Pullen from the Story Spotters, and he was sharing how to craft stories, how to spot them, how to share them. Very enjoyable conversation. This week, I just want to share a stat with you before I talk about today's guest, and you might relate to this. So Gallup shared that 99% of employees want feedback. However, 75% of managers don't like giving feedback. Those are two stats just butting heads at each other. I feel like if you could really outline all the problems that we see in organizations today, particularly with that employee-manager relationship, you could probably relate it back to those two statistics. So today we are talking about feedback and I'm joined by Beth Watson from ncdsolution.com. Now this is a quasi episode mixing up two topics. First of all, feedback conversations, how to get better at them. And of course, the facilitation side of things. So how to center yourself before a workshop. What do you do when you receive negative feedback? How do you process that? You know, that negative bias we all have. It can really sting us when it comes to receiving feedback, even if we've had you know, 99% of people say that they love our workshop. Anyway, you're probably thinking, yep, feedback, I know all about this. I teach feedback in workshops. What I love about Beth's approach is the simplicity of what she shares and how applicable it can be immediately. It's very practical and she's got a four-stage process for feedback. So if you know that you've been avoiding giving feedback for some time, she shares not only how to get over that, but also how to normalize it, how to regulate your emotions when you receive feedback, and just how to take that weird stigma away from giving feedback. Since 2015, Beth Watson, CEO and founder of Navigating Challenging Dialogue, has coached hundreds of C-suite professionals in Fortune 500s and the nonprofit sector to have meaningful, drama-free conversations. Clients learn to end miscommunication mishaps, chaos, and costly conflicts. In turn, they create a culture that fosters greater employee satisfaction, retention, and performance. Grounded in proven methods of self-management, Beth's proprietary process, NCD, which is Navigating Challenging Dialogue, guides leaders to communicate directly and effectively while strengthening their company's fundamentals. The mission of Beth Watson and Company is to bring navigating challenging dialogue to everyone who wants to have a meaningful, drama-free dialogue. By the way, Beth also shares a really awesome resource that she's got to help you center and regulate your emotions. I think it's going to be very handy to play before you walk into a workshop or an environment where you have to have possibly a difficult conversation that you're not looking forward to having. Uh, So I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Once the conversation is over, you can join our community of over 1,300 facilitators in my free Facebook group called The Flip Chart. Beth is in that group too, so you can ask her questions in there or check out her contact details in the show notes for this one over at firsttimefacilitator.com forward slash episode 170. All right, let's jump into this conversation. Onto the show. I'm so excited to welcome onto the First Time Facilitator podcast, Beth Watson. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. 
I'm really attracted to what you do because often uh, as facilitators running workshops, we get a lot of pushback when it comes to that time when we talk about feedback and resistance. I'd love to find out more about your career journey first, though. Was it a case of people asking you about how to deliver feedback that brought you onto this path or what's your story? Well, my story is I was a high school assistant principal. The principal of the high school had been very involved with Project Adventure, which a lot of people are familiar with and know about. So when I decided that assistant principalship wasn't exactly for me, I went to work for Project Adventure. I worked there for 13 years. I learned a lot about facilitation and group facilitation and all of that through my time at PA. I was in the sales and marketing department, but I went out and did a lot of implementation consulting and that type of thing. So that's where I really began to get my energy excited about helping people grow and develop and evolve. And then when I started my own company, I really wanted to incorporate brain-based research, social-emotional intelligence, how adults are motivated, how they learn, how they think. So I developed the program Navigating Challenging Dialogue, which is the underlying piece of the feedback work that I do. I wrote the feedback book because I've had my own company since 2010, and I've coached so many leaders and executives who develop really big, complex problems where they could have simply given feedback at the beginning, and they wouldn't have had to untangle the whole giant mess they're in now. And when I did about my 200th coaching session on this topic, I thought, I just got to write a book because... (laughs) It will be much more beneficial to people and a lot of people need this. So that's how I got there. Yeah, I love that you were sort of paying attention. You had an idea of what your business would be, but after 200 conversations where this topic just keeps popping up, you thought it was time. You probably were sounding like a a bit like a broken record, perhaps. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly right. I thought it's so much easier, but people are so resistant to give feedback. We're afraid we're going to hurt the person's feelings or they're not going to like us or they're going to have a bad reaction. And so we keep trying to manipulate behavior instead of just giving clear, clean, fact-based feedback. Absolutely. It is interesting that what you were talking about before, that we're afraid to give feedback because we really care about the person and how they're going to react to it. I certainly remember when I was a first-time leader, I was very young and I just wanted to be their friend. In fact, I was their friend and I'd been promoted. So I found that really difficult to then call in. So I would just was very passive and then it built up and it was just awful, just an awful time the way that it ended. I'll have to go into that in another podcast session. (laughs) Um, So how do we get over that barrier? Because I think you can, a lot of the time in workshops, we explain things, we go, right, this is what you should do. And then the embedding or the action happens or it may not happen afterwards. So can you share your process of working with leaders um, and then how you get them to sort of take action on this stuff? Yes. So the process that's in the book, Mastering Feedback, is pretty simple. It's a four-step process. And so the first step is to really just kind of get all your stories, your fears, your expectations about it out. Get them down on a piece of paper or just get them somewhere so they're out of your head. Our minds create all these stories with the intention of protecting ourselves, right? We really want to try our ego wants to keep our self-concept, our reputation, all those things intact. So it gives us all these reasons why we shouldn't just engage in the feedback. So get those out, acknowledge them, look at them, And then set them aside and identify what are the concrete facts of the feedback 
that I need to give. And when you develop those, be crystal clear about feedback is about helping someone take action so they can grow and develop. So most of the time, your conversation is going to be something like, this is where your performance is at. This is where it needs to be. This is where your skills are at. This is where they need to be. So you're going to be creating a very crystal clear gap for people so they can see it. And then the next question is, how do you think you might fill that gap? What support do you need to fill the gap? Some people might will need more help with identifying how to fill the gap, but feedback is about helping people grow and develop. So you want to give people an opportunity to use their genius, their strengths, their experience, their talents. The other piece about it is that the only person who truly knows what risks they're willing to take, what consequences they're willing to accept is the person you're giving the feedback to. So when you prescribe how they fill the gap in their head, they might be going, "Mm mm-hmm, sounds great, not doing it, no way. And so you wanna alleviate that by getting it out and being able to have a conversation about what steps they're going to take, empower them, and then close the loop by saying, how will I know when you're taking the steps, how will you track your progress? How will you keep me updated? That turns it from a, you're doing this wrong, do it better. I mean, that kind of general feedback doesn't help anybody. This turns it into a feedback, coaching conversation, and empowers the person. Yeah, there's a couple, a lot of great things in there. I just wanted to sort of pay attention to, to one is the fact that to get it out of your own head and onto paper and how powerful that is. And I was... I kind of knew this for a while. And then I've started this year writing a lot. So 21 minutes a day, I'll just get some thoughts out. And anything that's sort of big in my head and keeping me up at night, it just feels like the second it's on paper, you're like, oh my gosh, this is, it's so minimized. So I love that you share that. And the other thing is, as well as asking them, hey, how do you think you might build that gap as well and giving them the autonomy to do that? I think, well, as a first time leader, there was certainly, I felt like there was pressure on me to not only give the feedback, but also provide the solution. And one of my sort of author heroes, Michael Bungay Stanya, author of The Coaching Habit, he says, actually, you've got to be a bit more lazy-like in your leadership. The question I have for you, Beth, is as recipients of feedback, should we take on all the feedback that is given to us or should we be selective from who we listen to? So this is my advice. And this is an activity that in our training, we have a three-part training that we do on mastering feedback. One of the activities that I have everybody do, because everybody's there to learn how to give feedback. So I have everybody ask three people to give them feedback. Find a topic, something you want to get information on, you want to grow and develop and get feedback, but get it from one person you trust implicitly, one person that you really are kind of uncomfortable with. It's not someone you'd normally ask voluntarily for feedback and one person you have no idea. And then sit and just feel what it feels like to receive the feedback, listen to it, absorb it and then afterwards do a writing exercise and connect what the patterns and trends are. So someone might give you feedback that you don't agree with. They might say, you don't speak up enough in meetings. Maybe that's feedback that you get. Someone else might say, you don't show your expertise enough in meetings, right? And someone else might have another kind of related comment. 
instead of trying to agree with each of those, identify what's the pattern. So the pattern or the secret in there might be, maybe I could prepare better for meetings. Mm. Maybe it would be that people don't have a clear understanding of my expertise, or maybe I need to get help understanding how to interject in meetings. Like, I'm not sure what the specific thing would be, but listen not for the literal feedback because frequently people don't communicate with us about the underlying problem. They talk about the symptom that they see. And so to delve down into it, there are times when people give you feedback and you're just like, no way, doesn't resonate. They're off base. And people do. People who are not skillful giving feedback project. They sometimes talk about their fears They make up assumptions. I heard somebody who's a world-renowned coach do a little mini feedback session live on LinkedIn the other day, and he actually diagnosed somebody in the feedback. He said, I think you're a little bit insecure. I think that you perhaps had an experience earlier in life that made you shy or whatever. Like that doesn't belong in a feedback conversation. Especially like streams on LinkedIn. (laughs) If somebody starts diagnosing you, that's not feedback. Feedback is fact-based. I saw X, X happened. This is what the desired behavior is. This is what the performance level is for the particular work that you're doing. Here's the gap. That's feedback, fact-based. Yeah, and you're so right. And look, as facilitators as well, we're often at the mercy of the feedback sheet. <laughs> or, yes, yes. And we tend yes. to also have a negative bias. So you could have, and like the smile sheets, you could have, you know, 95% of your workshop room, like loved your workshop, they were thrilled. And then you get that 5%, which is just, oh, and it kind of stabs at the heart. What's your advice for, you talk about brain-based science and we, we're, we're aware we've got this negative bias, but how do we get past that? Is it a process, as you said, of, of journaling it and putting it back into perspective? Well, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the feedback sheets. I call them evaluation sheets or reflection sheets because they aren't truly feedback, right? I just had a workshop a few weeks ago that I did. There were 24 people in it. 23 people loved it. And one person compared the two-hour session to a week-long thing they had gone to with Stephen Covey and gave me bad ratings in comparison to you know a multi-day session with Covey's work. So it hits you hard when you read that. And it's so easy to dismiss the 23 pieces of what we call feedback and just focus on that one. I think we just have to go through our process. I read it. It struck me, took, put me back on my heels. I put it aside and then I went back to it a day or so later to see, okay, so what is in here that's of value for me? Because mm. what are the facts? Well, the facts is it was a two-hour workshop. The one he went to was a multi-day workshop. The fact is X, Y, and Z, where could I improve? And he did say one thing, and I can't remember what exactly it was about, about my delivery online. And I thought, okay, that's a fair assessment. That was okay. I can build and improve in that place. Mm. Yeah, I like that that question that you ask is how can I get value from this? But also like reading it, parking it, hopefully not thinking about it, thinking, right, I'll revisit this the next day. Thank you for being so open and sharing that story with us as well. And I just like, I think all the listeners that are facilitators, we've all had those moments. I was coached by Alan Weiss. He wrote the book Million Dollar Consulting. He actually says, I don't even look at the feedback sheets. He's just like, I'm that, he's just that confident. He doesn't even have a look. 
But actually, thank you for reminding me that to not call them feedback sheets because you're right, they are reflection and evaluations. I like really like that terminology. Um, you spoke about that feedback was about a virtual workshop. How are you finding it now? I, I did a podcast on how to win friends and influence people online, but there's a missing piece to that. And it's how do you deliver feedback online if the relation, I mean, it's much, I find it easier in person because you've got all that information that's coming through to you. You can set the environment. Are people avoiding feedback even more now because the interactions are quite, it's not as fluid as it would be in a face-to-face environment. What are you finding with that? What I'm finding with my clients is people are avoiding feedback, even for reasons before the fact that they're online, they're avoiding giving feedback because they have a story that people are stressed and overwhelmed. And I think there's some truth to that story, right? People are tired. We're stressed. We're overwhelmed. The past year has been just a cycle of disappointment after disappointment, right? It's been a tough year. And in organizations, particularly in the U.S., I'm not sure about your economy, but a lot of organizations are going through budget crisis and figuring out how they're going to outfit their physical space for if people are going to come back. And some people don't even want to come back. And there's a lot of concerns happening. And so managers are telling me that they are backing off feedback because they don't want to further overwhelm people. This is the way I think of feedback. I think of, I don't know if you call it football. You might call it football where you are, but an indoor soccer arena, which has the boards around the edge, right? So the ball can go against the boards and be out of play, but it never really goes fully out of bounds. Feedback is your boards for your employee. It's the way you help them know if they're staying on track, if they're on target, if they're working in the right direction. And so normalizing feedback, not as a special occasion, right? I have feedback for you and people are like, oh no, what's that mean? (laughs) But just as something you do as part of your work. I have some feedback for you on this project. I have feedback for you on the goals. I have feedback for you on, you know, whatever. Can we talk about this? Once you normalize it, it becomes a support for people who are overwhelmed, who are stressed out to know, hey, I'm still heading in the right direction. And it gives them an opportunity to bring challenges to you early. So I would set the stage virtually in the same way I would in person, right? Turn off your devices, make sure you have enough time to sit and have people ask questions to provide explanations, make sure you have a, your specific example written down on what you want to talk about. I saw this, this happened with the report last week. This is what occurred so that people can ground the feedback in something real versus vague generalizations. Mm -hmm. But I would do it in the same exact way you would do it face to face. But just don't stop doing it because people need it. There was a research report that came out not too long ago and it said, I forget who did it, it might've been Gallup. And they said something like 75% of managers are hesitant to give feedback and 99% of employees want it. Want it. I mean, don't quote me on the numbers because I'm not sure if I have it right, but it was like that. So if you have 75% of managers who aren't getting feedback, (laughs) but the majority of people are wanting it, there's a big problem, right? Thank you for sharing. I'll have to track down that stat. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll send it to you after we get off the call. But people also said that they only get feedback at their annual performance review. So how can you take action 
on feedback that is so late in delivery. The performance evaluation meeting should be something entirely different. It's not a feedback session. It's an evaluation of progress, how you're doing towards goals, uh, where are you going to go in the future? How are you going to get developed? Are you a fit for your job? All those types of things. It's not a feedback session. Mm -hmm. If that's the only time you're giving feedback, you're missing the mark entirely. Oh, and it's, I mean, yeah, based on that stat you talked about, it's so true. I, I often joke at my old company, you, know, you want to get to the end of the year and there's no surprise, but there's absolutely people are getting surprised all the time at those end of year performance reviews, which is so yes. unfortunate, which is, I mean, it's this compelling case for the work that you do, right? Just yes. that stat alone. I completely can see that being real, that, I mean, we all want feedback. We all want to improve. We're not there to do a bad job, but wow, that avoidance of it, it's amazing. The question for you is, and you talk about normalizing the feedback conversation, and I completely agree with that. I definitely remember one time I ran a workshop and executive came up to me after and he says, hey, can I give you some feedback? And my defense wall, like without even, it just like automatically came up and it was positive, which is lovely. But even in that microsecond between him delivering that and me hearing that question, I like froze. So if you've got someone that's, they've, they've gone to your workshop and like, right, I want to start normalizing this now, making it part of my routine. What would their next step be with the team? They just catch up together and go, this is the way it will work now. Or is it a bit more subtle? What would you suggest? So I talk a lot about this in the book. I think the first way to normalize feedback is to ask for it, right? To exhibit, you know, demonstrate the behavior you desire in others. So begin asking your team for feedback on a frequent basis. I work with one leader who's, when I asked if they had gotten feedback from their team recently, they said, yeah, I went around and asked everybody and everyone said, things are great. And I said, okay, then we have a different problem, right? It's a trustworthiness problem. They're not going to tell you because things are never always perfectly great. They're not. So that's a different problem entirely. But I would encourage people to ask and to set the stage. We talk about things like full value contract or behavioral norms. Set the stage like nothing you say will be used against you in any type of performance evaluation. There's no hierarchy here. I'm just seeking feedback on how I can support you better in your growth and development. How do I manage you better? And get the conversations to be like dramaless, but you also have to be able to manage your own emotions. So if someone gives you some hard feedback, you can't then flip out or say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about or whatever. You have to be able to be like water emotionally, say thank you. You might ask for clarification, use a coaching question like, oh, that's so interesting. Can you say more about that? Or what I think I hear you saying is X. Tell me where I'm wrong. Like those are great questions to give yourself a pause, mm -hmm. to take a break and calm your all your emotions down and your blood pressure and all that. So I would begin there. I would let people know that I want to begin normalizing the culture of feedback. So I'm going to be offering more feedback and we're going to be having feedback conversations every week or every other week or whatever the case may be. So mm. those are the ways that I would do it. I wouldn't try and be secretive about it. It's not like a secret mission. We're doing this. <laughs> this is what we're doing because yeah. I want everyone to grow and improve. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I like that idea of just uh, role modeling it yourself and asking for feedback, but also that you brought up the emotional regulation, uh, particularly if it's like a new thing. And I think sometimes maybe I'm making an assumption here that by opening up for feedback, then you're quite vulnerable because you could be hearing a lot of different things. And then you're like, wow, my job just got three times harder um, as a result. So I think there's, there's a lot of things that you need to sort of process as you go through. But I think that yes. being honest and not making it a secret mission is definitely a great way to, to get yes. there. 
back, let me say, add one more thing. Back when I was facilitating a lot of groups, my facilitation partner and I, at the end of every group, we'd answer these questions. What did you see me do well? What do you think I could have done differently? And that was our quick feedback thing. We drive it, we do it on the way home from the program or before we had dinner or whatever. And it's just, what do you think I did well? And what do you think I could have done differently? And we'd answer that for each of us. But we knew we were going to be doing that. So we were thinking about it during the day. Also in the morning, before we started the program, we each stated a personal goal of what we wanted to work on in terms of our facilitation or how we wanted to show up. So we could circle back around in terms of the goal that we had expressed. So those are some other ways just to take the tension out of it and normalize it and make it a habit. Yeah, love that. Yeah, you've got sort of a benchmark or a way to measure it. It's not just based on opinion. It's like, this is the goal that I want to set for today. And then let's revisit that at the end. That's the real value of having co-facilitators, isn't it? That person that you can sort of debrief afterwards. And I think that Facebook group, the flip chart is where we all sort of dive in afterwards if we're a solopreneur uh, doing this. So in terms of um, you've moved to virtual workshops now, how have you found that process? What have you learned as a result of of pivoting (laughs) P-word and moving your courses online? I don't know why, but a year before the pandemic, we had a planning meeting and my team said, we got to start thinking about how to do more work online. One person just had this intuitive hit that it was going to be important. So we had started, already started the initiative of offering many things online and people having the choice of in line or in person. So when the pandemic hit, we were kind of already partway down the road. I desperately miss. I love group coaching. It's one of my favorite things to do. I absolutely love having eight or 12 people in a room for a day or two to work on things together. So I miss the energy of that immensely. But what I'm finding is that a lot of that can be captured online. It's just a matter of how you set it up, how you talk about norms for participation, how you build that trustworthiness when you're not directly in front of people so they feel comfortable. It's a little trickier as a facilitator to be using those DRIs and owl ears to be catching the person who's just ready to speak or the person who might be disengaging so you can re-engage them. It's a little trickier when it's all squares on a screen, but it still can be done. And I'm finding that the amount of time is shorter. Two hours, maybe three hours is the most that folks can take, not six hours in a room. (laughs) I miss that. I miss the, you know, six hours of hard thought work and then people go home for the night and then they come back the next day and they have new ahas and everything. It's different when they're there for two hours and they go back to being immersed in work and then you pull them back the next day or the next week. It's not exactly the same, but I think it's a methodology that isn't going away. Oh, no. Only get better at it. That's it. And well done to one of your team members for raising that a year prior to like back in 2019. What a futurist. Yes, Yes. no kidding. In terms of your preparation for workshops, we all, I think we know energy is a really important part of being a facilitator. Knowing when to sort of be energetic and all that, people looking to us as a signal. How do you personally prepare for a workshop that you're about to deliver? I have a process and it's a part of what we teach in Navigating Challenging Dialogue. And my mantra is, Be responsible for the energy you bring to the room. I take a few minutes. I do some breathing. I listen for the beat of my heart. 
And I remember to feel gratitude for that because my heart has been with me since six weeks after conception. It's been with me everything I've ever been through, every journey, every decision, everything. And so my constant companion. So feeling a lot of gratitude. It's not possible to feel anxiety, stress, and gratitude simultaneously. Gratitude always wins. Ground my feet on the floor and I allow whatever things are nagging at me, whatever leftover energy I have from the bad conversation I had or fear about how people might perceive me, whatever it is, and just show up with complete and total full presence in that moment and in the moments that I'm there. So when I'm facilitating, it's almost like time stands still and I'm just in that container with that group connected through heart energy and being fully present for what's happening. That's been my process for as long as I've been doing this work. And I find if I come in with fears or assumptions about people, the magic can't happen when those things are blocking whatever is going to happen. That's how I prepare. That's a magical centering exercise, I think. That's probably something I need to incorporate into my practice. I'm going to re-listen to to what you do. And I love that you just feel like having that physical sensation of feeling your heartbeat and then feeling that gratitude. Yes. Um, Yeah, you kind of really do need to park the thing, not park them, refocus your energy into what is about to occur and um, that brings it back into the present. Is that something that you do? Like, are you, do you meditate daily or is that, is this just your facilitation? So I've done, I've done meditation for years and I do meditate, but this is a little bit different process. And I actually have a 10 minute recording on my website that anybody can access for free. So you can listen to it and you can go through the process. It's actually one of the things we teach in navigating challenging dialogue to help people. It's called putting grace in the space. And that's one of our mantras. And so it helps people when you feel yourself getting an emotional hotspot or what some people call triggered by a conversation or a dialogue or a situation. So now I can do that in an instant. If I look and there's a phone call coming in that is going to be stressful for me, I just immediately kind of do that process, balance myself, and then I can answer the phone call. Then I can proceed. And nobody sees me doing it. It's just my thing. But that's what I teach executives and leaders to do, to be able to have that executive presence that they need to have so that folks feel comfortable and comforted, particularly through change and uncertainty. Mm, I'm definitely grabbing that 10-minute audio, uh, putting grace in the space. I love that. All the work that we do at Beth Watson and Company is about self-awareness and self-management. None of it is designed to manipulate people, get people to do things or anything. It's about me taking care of myself and managing me. The beautiful outcome of that is when I do that, when I manage me and I take care of me, then other people's defenses and need to protect themselves and everything just goes down. And then we can collaborate. Then we can partner. Then we can have relationship. But if we're both kind of posturing and trying to figure out, you know, what the other one's about and all of that type of stuff, you can't get there. It's mm. it just that uh, you don't get the outcomes that you really desire, which yeah. is for 
the good of the whole, right? For everybody to be able to contribute their best and do their best. Yeah, it's so interesting because we said we think I'm responsible for the group outcomes and therefore I've got to do all this work and manipulating the group dynamics. But really what you're saying is just start with yourself and the side effect is that that will yes. that will follow. I love that. Wow, very powerful, Beth. Thank you. Yeah, I've had really difficult participants in workshops. I do a lot of workshops with the government. A lot of people do not want to be there. They are putting in their time till they can retire. And I've had people just turn around. And one guy came up to me at lunch. He showed up at the workshop with his newspaper, put it up in front of him, sat in the back of the room. And for half the morning, he did not participate on a level. And at at lunchtime, he came up to me and said, this is the most powerful workshop I've ever been in. And that was six years ago. He still reads my newsletter every week when it gets oh. sent out. And uh, it was, um, I've had those kinds of transformations happen because it's an invitation for people to engage. That's very non-threatening. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I'd love to go to one of your workshops and see how you do it. Uh, for those, <laughs> I'd love to um, have you. Yeah, thank you. So you've been facilitating for quite a while. If you can think back and give yourself some advice or anyone that's listening that is a first-time facilitator that wants to create more engaging workshops like, that you talk about, what advice would you give them? Trust the process. Someone said that to me early on, a facilitation partner, when I got really panicky right before lunch, I thought people weren't getting it. And I'm like, we have to change. We have to change what we're doing. We have to change. You know, this person's not engaged. And he looked at me and said, Beth, trust the process. And so if you've done your prep work, you're showing up, you know the goals you're going for, you're really engaged with the energy in the room, you're mirroring people, you're letting them know they're seen and heard. That's another mantra of navigating challenging dialogue at the end of the day. Everyone just wants to be seen and heard. So if you're affirming their presence, you're affirming that you heard them, it will all tie up in the end. So don't take that on that you have to make every other person happy because it's not possible. They're responsible for their own happiness. You're not. That is amazing advice. I wish I had that when I started out. That would have stopped me me frantically adjusting things during the breaks. (laughs) I never really got breaks. It was like, oh, I'm going to change this around. So it's lovely to hear that. But it's all about, as you said, doing that work beforehand. So you've got a process that you can rely on. Beth, if um, Alyssa would love to reach out to you, find out more about the work that you do, your book, your workshops, where should we send them? Our website is ncdsolution.com. So it's N navigating C challenging D dialogue solution.com. We have free resources. We have all kinds of things on there. The books on there, our workshops are on there. I'd love to hear from folks. I love your Facebook group. It is so informative. And my person who does a lot of my background work has already been in there pulling off resources for different tools and everything. So uh, it's a great spot for people to go. I love that group. Yes. Yeah. So Beth's in there. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, reach out. We'll pop all your links in the show notes for this one. Beth, thank you so much for being part of this and for sharing, first of all, everything, all the work that you do on feedback and also then how you facilitate that with groups. Um, It's been very helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around. You've reached the end of another episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Connect with the show at firsttimefacilitator.com or follow me on Instagram at Leanne Hughes to find out what I'm up to during the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone who will also appreciate the insight and make it easier for yourself and subscribe to the show in your podcast player of choice. 
Thank you so much for listening and chat to you next week.